The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Dr. Damon Tweedy, is a graduate of Duke Medical School and Yale Law School. He teaches psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center and is a staff physician at the Durham VA Medical Center. Dr. Tweedy has published articles in the Journal of the American Medical Association in the Annals of Eternal Medicine, and his columns and op-eds have appeared in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Raleigh News and Observer, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's here today to talk about his book, the New York Times bestseller, Black Man in a White Coat, A Doctor's Reflections on Race and Medicine. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Damon Tweedy. Thank you. So you, you start Black Man in a White Coat um, talking about w- one of the allures of, of pursuing medicine and science was the idea that you could escape race, that these were pursuits that were objective and and neutral pursuits in a sense, and that you had quite a wake-up call when you started medical school. Yes. Yes. So this book really looks at at that issue from two two ways. So one is the perspective of uh, African-American patients, sort of the health problems that that we experience. And so um, when you learn about disease as a first-year student, you hear about uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, cancer, all these different disorders, and you learn about the demographics of them. And whenever, whenever we would get to that point in the, in the lecture, they, they, professors would always say that it's more common in black people and that black people who get the disease do worse. So that was a pretty clear um, idea that everything wasn't just sort of neutral in, in a way. And so the book, explore, that's one big theme of the book is to explore that. The second biggest aspect, the second big theme of the book is to explore how uh, my experience as an African-American physician, medical student, and later physician was unique uh, for my colleagues. So those are really the two layers in which um, I explore how race is different. And, and you say in the book that you came to, to see that being black is, is, in a way, bad for your health. And, and when you say that some of these conditions are more common, there, some of them are actually quite a lot more common. You, you, you cite infant mortality rate being twice as high, death from prostate cancer being twice as high, obesity rate in, in black women being twice as high, um, stroke and high blood pressure twice as high. So a, a whole order of magnitude higher uh, in some of these conditions. Yes, and so um, you know when you learn about that, so so the next question is why, and then, and then from that you want to know well, why, and then what can you do about it, and so those are the questions that I really didn't feel like um, I got answers for at that point in my life, and so the book is largely a, a way to explore that problem, and what I do is I use actual real stories of real people um, to explore these problems, and you see that there are a lot of different layers to it. I mean, there's, it's not, it's, I mean, so some of it may be um, genetic, but there's, there's many other aspects to it. There's, there's whole issues of. Um, socioeconomic status and and in so many ways that plays out in terms of insurance, health insurance, black people being less likely to have health insurance, being in areas where they don't have access to health care, primary care, or specialty care. All these things really play out. There's other, another layer in terms of the doctor-patient relationship and how that's a big part in, in health outcomes. And then thirdly, I look at how individual sort of cultural patterns of diet and exercise also play a huge part. So all those factors are interrelated, and I explore them in the book by using real people's stories to illustrate those problems. Well, let's talk a little bit about the way race and, and racism enters the doctor-patient relationship. You, sure. you, you cite many uh, disturbing examples 
when you were a medical student and you were observing uh, patients and how they were being treated by by supervisors as they came in and, and were examined. And, and one person that sticks out is a patient named Gary who who is reluctant to take high blood pressure medication before trying some diet and lifestyle modifications. Can can you talk a little bit about Gary and, and the takeaway you you had from that experience? Yeah, sure. So at this point, this point in time, I'm a, this is my intern year, so I'm, you know, the brand new MD, just trying to sort of fit in and trying to, you know, just survive this. That's what the internship is, uh, largely feels like. So this is a medicine internship. And Gary was this gentleman in his mid 50s, African American man. He comes into the hospital, the public hospital setting. Uh, so many of the patients there were poor. And, uh, he comes in with chest pain. And, you know, the initial tests rule out having a heart attack. So from there, you know, the next step is, well, uh, you, you want to do tests to see if he has underlying heart disease, <clears throat> maybe stress tests, those kinds of things, uh, catheterization. And then you want to, you know, start doing what they call secondary prevention, things like taking blood pressure medicine, taking aspirin, not smoking, all, all those sorts of things. And so everything seemed to be going really well in, in this case. And then, uh, Towards the end, they talked about taking a blood pressure medicine, and he uh, wanted to, to you know, follow diet and exercise, as you said, and really try and address that because you know there's there's a lot of research to show that those can make a huge difference uh, in in blood pressure. Um, but instead of uh, sort of talking about that and sort of saying, oh, that's an interesting idea, and maybe even encouraging him to to optimize that approach, uh, they were very skeptical. So skeptical, in fact, that uh, the doctors actually ended up giving him a um, sort of surprising. So he ended up giving him like a psychiatric label. So here's a guy who comes in with the hospital with chest pain, and that's his primary issue, but then comes out of the hospital with a, with a psychiatric diagnosis. Because it, because it seems that the knowledge that he displayed in terms of trying to improve his diet was, was more than they expected, and it was almost as if he was challenging them. And, 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 and by doing that, there seemed to be there was, in their eyes, what I can tell, it seemed like there was something wrong with him if he knew that much about these um, problems. Like there was some kind of obsessive quality to him in order to know that much. So the clear case of bias, because in many other cases, you would you'd be welcome, you'd welcome patients that have that sort of knowledge, and you'd be encouraging them to uh, optimize those sorts of approaches. And you would think that could potentially be one piece of the puzzle for poor outcomes, poor health outcomes for for black patients if if they're receiving that level of of care. Well, certainly a factor. I mean, if you think about the idea of having a psychiatric diagnosis, that's certainly not like a benign sort of thing. So if you have that label on your record now, and when you go into future encounters, people are going to be, doctors are going to be aware of that. And then, you know, whether we admit it or not, those sort of things certainly impact how we then subsequently approach patients and their problems. So a person with a psychiatric illness, they come into the hospital, they have a medical issue, they may be more likely to be seen as a psychiatric problem, and, not, and the medical problem may be less likely to be uh, addressed. So, yeah, so certainly that, that can be an issue. Uh, there's, there's no doubt that that's uh, uh, at least one factor in the bigger picture. And I would also say as a result of that, uh, and actually if you go back further, there's often an issue with African-American patients having uh, a reluctance to even engage in, mental, engage in medical care to begin with. So there's a sort of reluctance or hesitance to engage in care because of a history where, you know, black people have been discriminated against in the healthcare arena. And so often you'll see black patients being mistrustful of healthcare. And uh, even, when the, even when the care is appropriate, they may be more, re- more reluctant to, um, you know, uh, go along with the recommendations for that reason. So it's also a very intricate, complicated factor in which how doctor bias can influence health outcomes as well as patient sort of uh, reluctance or sort of aversion to care can, can affect uh, health outcomes. So it all kind of inter- interrelates in a sort of um, really awful way for black people. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Dr. Damon Tweedy about his latest book, Black Man in a White Coat, A Doctor's Reflections on Race and Medicine. Well, you mentioned uh, reluctance uh, to seek medical care, and there's a real uh, 
history uh, that creates a, a real a narrative um, that informs some of these these reluctances. Can you can you talk a little bit about some of the history for African Americans around medicine in the United States that leads to people avoiding getting medical care? Well, yes. I mean, I think if you go back, uh, you know, 50 years ago, let's just lose that as a nice marker, because I think 50 years ago was the, sort of right at the, the height of the civil rights movement when you had the Voting Rights Act and things like that being passed. So it's sort of an sort of apex of the civil rights movement. So 50 years ago, medicine <clears throat> and hospitals were just starting to integrate because, you know, the Civil Rights Act was passed the year before, 64, and so hospitals are seg- many hospitals are segregated, and, and patients, black people were treated on wards uh, where there's clearly inferior care. In some cases, they were denied treatments. Now, this seems like a long time ago, but if you think about the life of people who are around, many of these people are still living now and have passed on that sort of uh, history, you know, down to you know, people in my generation. So it's a, it's a, real, it's a real history. Um, there's also, the, during that time, there was the, the famous Tuskegee experiment was still ongoing. So that took place between, you know, 1940s or so and early 1970s. It didn't stop until 1972. In that case, you had um, men with syphilis in, in the South who were actually... Um, known to have syphilis, there was treatments available for it, but they, they were basically being deceived uh, because the experimenters wanted to follow sort of the natural history of, of what syphilis would do. And so they picked this sort of population of unsuspecting people to, um, to experiment upon. These are all black men in this case. So you have this history. And so, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there are many other examples uh, along those same lines. And so that in, in modern times, I think, is really still impacts healthcare to the extent that many African Americans are wary of healthcare treatment. And how and, much how much is this history actually taught in medical school? Like are, are 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 white and black medical students getting this history um, when they're when they're learning how to do doctor patient relations? I think it's covered. You know, here's the thing. So, I, as I can recall, when I started medical school, I don't recall that being covered. So, I would say no to that back then. I would say that now, yeah, I'm involved in a doctor patient. Uh, introduction doc course at Duke, and I know that, that they do talk about that. Uh, I think some students have a hard time sort of capturing what that would have to do with now. It seems like a long time, because, you know, a 20-something-year-old student 50 years ago seems like a really, really long time ago. Like, what would that have to do with now? And so I think some students uh, grapple with that. So I try to impress upon them, um, you know, the idea of how, you know, the past certainly informs the present in so many different ways, um, not just with race, but with all sorts of other issues that we that we have in our society. And... Um, you know, and so I try to impress that upon them and, and sort of see how that can play out, how, how that can impact with something you see now in everyday life. Um, you may have an African-American patient under your care now who is, is questioning the, the treatment of diabetes, even though, say, you know, a, a metformin drug or something like insulin is obviously standard of care. They may really question whether or not they're receiving some ways inferior care, and a lot of that is still rooted in things that took place in the past. And so I really try to stress, stress that um, now. So I think there is progress in terms of teaching that, but there's still a way to go. I really love how, Dr. Tweedy, how you weave in some of your own personal experiences as well. And and one of them that sticks out for me, too, is when you go in to get your knee examined and you have this very uh, bipolar experience in the in the doctor's office as a patient. Can, can you talk a little bit about that that exam? Yeah, sure. So that was actually included in the same chapter where we talk about the uh, the gentleman named Gary. Uh, so here I'm uh, in my early 30s, and uh, it's about 10 years ago now, and I had, you think I had knee pain. And I went to an urgent care clinic because it wasn't getting better, um, and I didn't think I could wait long enough to see an orthopedic doctor. But it's like, oh, you know, I'm off this day. Let me just go and get it checked out, make sure there's nothing really wrong because it wasn't getting better. Um, so I went to an urgent care clinic, and uh, so I came from home. I'd been working outside, and so I was dressed in a very casual kind of way. And then I went to the clinic, and the doctor um, 
uh, when I went to the exam, the doctor never looked at me at first. Uh, looked at my knee, but never looked at me in the face. Looked at my knee, but didn't actually examine my knee. So it was really just sort of an eye test. And he had me stand up and down, but never actually touched my knee or examined it in that way. Uh, nor did he really look at me or engage with me in any kind of you know conversation. Uh, and so, and then he was ready to just sort of send me out without say I was fine. And as a doctor, I knew well, you know, there's probably more that should have been done, could have been done, kind of thing. And so I, I moved to some medical terms to make him realize that, you know, I kind of knew what I was talking about a little bit. Uh, it's not normally how I approach things, but that was, I felt like I needed to in that instance. And suddenly the doctor switched, you know, like I said, it's over 180. Uh, suddenly he looked at my eye, he looked me in the eye, started to talk to me, engage with me, was suddenly interested in me as a person. And then he did a physical exam. Uh, and then said, oh, you know, we should get an X-ray. So it was, it was almost like a whole different line of level of care, completely different care, not even just a different level of care, actually different care. Uh, and it was almost like being two different people. It was sort of an illustration of how, on one hand, I'm just dressed in a certain way. I can be perceived as, um, you know, just this random black guy. Who knows what other stereotypes may have. I can't get into his mind and know what exactly he was thinking. Uh, but then I know suddenly once I was being realized I was a, another colleague, it was suddenly like everything had changed and I was two different people. And so that was just sort of another illustration of how differently things can play out in a clinical exam encounter. Are you familiar with the poet Claudia Rankin, Dr. Twee? I know the name, but I don't, I'm not familiar with the, this particular work. It just made me, it made me think of, of something that she, she mentions in her book, Citizen, and I'm curious your thoughts on it. She talks a lot about microaggressions, which she calls uh-huh. um, sm- very small acts of racism um, that are happening even among friends and colleagues that are don't have poor intentions, but she also ponders in this book as a poet whether just navigating microaggressions on a day to day level could lead to adverse health outcomes. And I was just curious of what your thoughts were on that. I mean, obviously, there's the socioeconomic aspect. There's the the poor care. Um, there's the the history of of medical abuse historically that leads to distrust of, of getting standard of care today. But could there also just be that day-to-day uh, s- stress of navigating these things that may or may not be happening that are, that are small but cu- very cu- in a cumulative sense quite large? Sure, I think so. I think, I think to the extent that, you know, there, there's there's – because one of the things that you, you – you, um you sort of experience this, like when someone, you, when you describe one of these microaggressions, part of the mental gymnastics you go through is, well, is this really something racial or is it not? Or is this just like a, this person having a bad day? You, know, you, you sort of spend energy trying to navigate that part first. And so that requires a certain level of energy, right? And then the, then the next layer, well, if it was just a, a, slight, a racial slight, what should I do about it? Should I tell this person? Should I not? Exactly. Is it worth to pick the battle of the day or should I fight another day? You know, instead of all these other sorts of mental gymnastics you go through. Um, so, I mean, so in a cumulative way, yeah, this certainly um, can definitely uh, impact you. I mean, in the book, I talk about several of those sorts of situations. I mean, for instance, I mean, something, uh, I mean, there's, 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 it ranges from, like, things like well, this perception of you being a threat. So there's, there's, that's the most, you know, or someone walks, leaves the elevator when you come in or, or crosses the street when you are on their side. It's those things that I've certainly experienced. So that's there's that level of sort of microaggression, right? Um, and then there's also the um, the idea of things like I've experienced like with sports. So I'm an I'm a, you know, African-American man. I'm tall. There's this perception that I play basketball. Um, you know, and I do, I do love basketball. And so in some ways, sometimes it's fine. Someone asks you to play basketball, no big deal. But then there are other times when someone will then take it another step further, and then they'll assume that because you 
like basketball, then you, you you're dumb, or that uh, or that you can only play basketball. And so there there, there were ca- there were cases where patients would say, well, well you know, well, what are you doing here? You should be playing basketball, and you know, I don't think you need to be a doctor. And they would say not in a joke, but in a very serious way. So you know, is it, is it, so in that particular case, do you spend the energy to sort of assert yourself or not? You know, so all the things certainly can add up. And and you mentioned some really horrifying instances of you walking into a room as either a doctor or a medical student and people thinking you're the janitor, for instance. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So, right. so it gets even more uh, more so involved in what I described before. Yeah, so there's a one opening scene in the book where I'm a medical student, and uh, this is a professor. So in this case, it's even more serious because professor is someone who, you know, it's not just a random person you're going to see and not, never see again. It's like someone who's really has influence over you, right? And so it's very different than some of a random person on the street. So in this case, in the book, the professor, I walk into the classroom, and this is early in my first year. So I'm already feeling, you know, that sort of first-year medical student anxiety heightened by the fact that I'm an African-American man and I come from a lower-income family and all these other and my classmates have uh, much more well-to-do backgrounds. So all those things are already playing in my mind, but then I walk into the classroom, professor's like, oh, he comes up in a sort of angry kind of way, irritated actually. And you know, are you here to fix the lights? Um, you know, I called about this last week. Why didn't you do it yet? Um, sort of thing. And so I was taken aback. And I was thinking about, well, you know, did I dress the right way? Did I do something wrong? You go again. You go through this sort of internal dialogue. Uh, what should I do about it? Um, and so yeah, so that's an obvious case of of how um, you know these sort of situations play out and can impact you in an adverse way as an African American. Um, because because there's a mental energy required to do that. If you spend so much energy on that, it can also impact your performance academically and professionally as well. So there's so many other costs to it. Uh, even in beyond the sort of potential, you, you were talking about potential health problems. There's a sort of performance aspect to it as well. So a lot of factors at work. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today to Dr. Damon Tweedy about his book, Black Man in a White Coat, A Doctor's Reflections on Race and Medicine. Well, uh, in your, I believe in your 30s, you yourself get a diagnosis of high blood pressure and then start to notice some of your own resistances about seeking the standard of care uh, around a treatment for high blood pressure. Can, can you talk us through some of, the, of what you went through internally around that? Yeah, this is a really important uh, thing that sort of uh, topic that kind of is weaved throughout the whole book. And so, as a first-year medical student, so this again, this is that time when you're learning about all the health problems that African American people experience. Uh, I actually had some of my family. My, my grandmother actually died during my first year of medical school, uh, and she had you know a lot of these same problems: high blood pressure, um, you know, uh, that wasn't adequately treated. She had a series of strokes, ended up having vascular dementia. So she had these sorts of problems. Um, but me, about six months later, I'm 23 years old, so I'm still very young. Thinking, I'm very athletic at that time, uh, played sports several times a week, was in normal weight and all those sorts of things. But then I get diagnosed with high blood pressure. Uh, one day we're practicing as medical students, you know, how to examine each other, and my blood pressure is kind of through the roof. And uh, I get it checked out a few weeks later by a family doctor on campus. And, yeah, so my blood pressure was really high. And not only was it elevated, but... Uh, there's also some signs that I had uh, some kidney disease, actually, as well. Uh, at least, at least early signs that it may be heading in that in that direction. And so, a lot of things were happening. Um, and here I am, a very young, healthy guy. And so, I'm a medical student, so I have, a, and then later a doctor, I have a lot of knowledge about what to do, right? And so, uh, more so than the average person does. Uh, nonetheless, I still found myself really struggling. And the book kind of kind of talks about this in and out throughout the book as we throughout the story. You know, the struggles that I had to sort of address these problems. And a big part is diet, uh, when you talk about high blood pressure in particular. Um, I was eating just, even though I had my weight was normal, I was eating all kinds of really bad foods, 
you know, eat a whole pizza, eat several hot dogs, you know, just eating, eating fast food every day, that sort of thing. And I wanted to change my diet, and I did initially, um, but then I would kind of go back and forth in these sort of yo-yo cycling ways. And, of course, change is hard for everybody. Um, but for me, it was sort of an added layer to it. Uh, it was almost as if, um, you know, I'd grown up in a certain kind of environment, a working class, all-black community, and eating one type of food and then changing from another, it felt more like more than just simply changing your lifestyle. It was almost like uh, an identity issue. It was almost like you, you're, you identify a certain way of eating, like you identify, you identify certain healthy foods, like you know, eating salads and uh, you know, bottle drinking bottled water and, and uh, you know, low fat yogurt. You identify that as white, and so there's almost like a resistance to, uh, to, to changing. And so it was almost as if. Uh, it wasn't so much that the change of food represented a hard thing in terms of texture or taste, but it was more along the lines of what it meant in terms of my identity. And so that's a real struggle. And so that's something that, you know, many African-American patients I've seen and talked to understand that. And so I think if you're seeing a patient in the clinic and they have high blood pressure, it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, did we try this blood pressure, well, let's switch to this other one. I mean, I think it also could be more along the lines of like, giving the patient room to discuss, well, you know, hey, what might be getting in the way of us reaching our goals? And giving the patient to sort of open it, space to talk about an issue like that. And for me, that was a big deal. Once I was able to, to recognize that for what it was, I was really able to overcome it. And so now my blood pressure is normal. I don't need blood pressure medicine or anything, and I have very normal blood pressure. And I'm actually in not as good a shape as I was back then. And so it's, it's an interesting example of, of kind of working through these issues. Well, to quote you from, from Black Man in a White Coat, you, you say at one point, Poverty, poor access to medical care, and unhealthy lifestyle choices, to name a few, are certainly valid. But the longer I've practiced medicine, the more I've come to appreciate a factor that is less obvious, the lack of black doctors. Uh, tell us how, how scarce are, are black doctors today. Yeah, so that's the other big piece of the book, right, about the, what's the unique about my experience as an African-American doctor. And so, you know, in the general population, it's about 13% of the population is African-American. Now, that number is actually considerably higher in many of the sort of main academic medical centers where, where uh, doctors are trained. So if you talk about, like, for instance, Duke is in Durham, North Carolina, which is like 40% black. Johns Hopkins is in, is in Baltimore, where it's 60% black. Uh, you know, so several, you can name the school Penn is in Philadelphia where it's like 50% black. So, so all these, a lot of these major hospitals are in places where there's a really large black population, even much larger than the, than the national average. But even there, the number of African American physicians is about 4%. So we're talking about nationwide 13% population, 4% in, um, among physicians. And again, that, those numbers are even more uh, dramatic when you talk about uh, many of the places where doctors are trained. Um, so that's a real stark disconnect there. And is is this a, can, a scenario that's worsening, or is it improving with time? Yeah, you know, it's, it's plateaued. And so there was a period in which, so like, if you go back to like the '60s, the numbers were like one or two percent, and all those doctors were being trained at two medical schools: um, Howard, which is a black school in D.C., and Meharry, which is a historically black school in, in Tennessee. And that's why they were all being trained like back in the uh, mid '60s. But now, during the 70s and 80s, there was a, particularly 70s, there was a significant increase in African-American doctors. This is largely due to the, sort of the end of the civil rights movement and affirmative action was really strong during that period of time. Um, but the numbers have actually sort of plateaued over the last 20 years, particularly in African-American men. Uh, so the numbers of African-American women doctors have still gone up, but the African-American men, the number of doctors, there's actually a recent study that came out about two months ago um, by the Association of American Medical Colleges, which is the, called the AAMC. And the numbers have actually plateaued in African-American men uh, going back to about 1980, so the last 35 years. 
So, so what well, in every other every other subgroup, the numbers have gone up in, in, uh, significantly because the population has gone up significantly. So the population of the general population as well as the population of doctors. The one exception was African American men. And, and in terms of a difference between subgroups, also uh, the vast majority of black doctors are women, which isn't yes. which isn't true in other groups necessarily. Yeah, exactly. So about so about, about two thirds of the African American uh, medical students uh, now are women. Um, whereas among other groups, it's more like you know fifty, fifty, or fifty-five, forty-five men. Um, but then among men, black women, it's two to one. Uh, so that's a, it's a, so as an African American male doctor myself, I'm certainly a, definitely an outlier uh, in the medical world. And is there any movement that's going on today that uh, people can hook into around um, making medical school more accessible for the African American medical student? There's several, there's several programs. I mean, it's, it's kind of taking place in a hodgepodge sort of way. But, yes, I mean, for instance, Duke um, is part of a consortium of about six schools, I think, on the East Coast where we, they have summer programs. Uh, it's called the Summer Minority. I'm lacking on the exact uh, uh, stance, but it's basically a summer minority program for medical and dental students, aspiring medical and dental students who are African American. And it brings students to campus and it gives them a feel for um, – you know, the whole idea of what it takes to apply to medical school, what it's like to interview for medical school, what, you know, what courses do you need, how do you study for the MCAT, all those really sort of nuts and bolts kinds of things that so many African-American students just really don't have or, or sort of miss out on. So I think that's a big part of the puzzle. But I think an even bigger piece uh, kind of goes back to, to bigger issues in society. You're talking about issues like educational access, quality of education at much younger ages. Even, to even get in the pipeline to become a medical student, you have to have had a certain you know, start at a, much, a younger age before you even get to college. And so that's a huge issue. And I think there's this really big piece of sort of perception in society. Uh, I think that sort of the, the, the lanes for African-American men are, are so narrow. Like if, if I think about my childhood and uh, some of the people I know, it's like, well, you always hear about so many black men there in the criminal justice system and, and all that sort of, you know, all sort, that sorts of thing. And then the black men who do succeed, it's like, well, they, they're either athletes or they're sort of some kind of entertainer. And so there's just sort of like this idea, and I think it starts from the top of society and it sort of filters down to the community where it really limits the aspirations of African-American men in, in particular. So that's a real issue that we're struggling with. And, and part of my goal in writing the book was to sort of help combat some of that. And it's interesting. So you're, you're a, a rare African-American male doctor, but you're also a psychiatrist, which makes, which is even probably rare in this sense. And, and you talk a little bit about um, some of the challenges of mental health within the African-American community and particular biases towards uh, seeking mental health. Can, can you touch briefly on, on, on that as well? Yeah, so that's a whole other layer, right? So when I went to psychiatry, just like when I went to medical school, I wasn't really thinking about race so much. Um, but once, but, but once you get there, you just sort of see how it plays out. And so in many ways, African American, uh, there's just two issues really. So African American people often are um, have less access to care, just like in the, the medical medical realm. And, and in psychiatry, sometimes it's even more stark when you because so much of it is based on insurance. And so like if you in the county care you can get, it really is different whether you have insurance or not. And particularly in psychiatry, it's really stark. Um, there are a couple of issues that come with psychiatry. So one is this issue of uh, what they call misdiagnosis. You often find African-American people are more likely to, be, to have um, 
a more serious diagnosis being given to them. There's a whole lot of research that goes into that, and so they're more likely to receive uh, much ser- more serious medications for, and less likely to receive psychotherapy as an option versus sort of the sort of hardcore heavy heavy duty medications. Whole that's, a, that's one big component of it. And I think a lot of that is just sort of the idea of a doctor and patient not being able to relate to each other. And I think if you, do, you can't relate and communicate to a patient well, it's always easiest to give the medication. Um, and so that's one big part of it. I think another aspect of it is, is a, it's again, is another history of African American in the community having really sort of a fear of mental health treatment. And again, there's a bad history with how the mental health treatment is, has stereotyped and perceived African Americans. But there's also a perception among African Americans that um, mental health is something that's in a luxury that's afforded for, for white people in a way. And it sounds bad, but that's kind of how it often plays out. And there's this idea that it can be handled within the community, within church, and those sorts of things. And so there's also this sort of aversion in some ways to mental health care. Um, so again, you have these two different things that are working in, in, that are two different things that are working together to sort of make the outcomes worse for African Americans. And, and finally, how, how has Black Man in a White Coat been received among your colleagues in the medical community and, and patients? I think really good feedback. I mean, there's certainly people, whenever you talk about race, there's some people who are always going to bristle at that. I mean, that's just inevitable. Um, and I've had some people on the other side where they felt like I, I wasn't um, sort of um, political enough and, you know, and sort of, and sort of um, you know, calling things out even more than I could have. Um, so I think there's, there's some of that, but overall, my perception has been very positive. Uh, I, I didn't have been at Duke, so I was worried about how Duke would perceive it, because you know, I'm, I'm still at Duke, and I've been here for many years. I had an event last week, and they were very enthusiastic about the event. It was well attended. Uh, people are very receptive to this message. And I think that the thing that I appreciate most is, is when people – I got a, a recent email from someone who said, you know, when I first heard about your, your topic in your book, I really was – very reluctant. I was very wary. I kind of bristled at the idea of another person being divisive and talking about race. But then they said once they started to read it, they really understood, you know, I was able to open their eyes to something that they never knew was even something that was a problem. Like we hear about race issues in the criminal justice system and all that, but this is a whole other world that was opening up to these to, to people. And they really appreciated my perspective. And so this is someone who may have in the first been against the whole discussion, but I was able to sort of draw them in. And so I think that's like a really positive thing that I hope to do on a larger scale. Well, it's a real pleasure having you on Health Watch, Dr. Tweedy. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're talking today to Dr. Damon Tweedy, the author of Black Man in a White Coat, A Doctor's Reflections on Race and Medicine. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Mm-hmm.